Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. In him you were also circumcised in the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you, were, you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has give, taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or guarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which, per, uh, which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are no, of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Let's pray together. Lord, we just are grateful that your grace is greater than all of our sin today. We're grateful, Lord, that your mercy is new this morning. We're grateful, Lord, that our names are written in your book of life, those of us that know you. We're so grateful, Lord, that you've freed us from darkness and you've placed us into your marvelous light, Lord. And we're so grateful to be able to fellowship with one another and to worship you and to love one another. All the things that bless your heart when we come together. Thank you that we've got to worship you in song and, and in giving. And now we do so in the worship of you related to sitting at your feet and studying your word. Help us, Lord, to take these things very seriously and take them to heart. Help us, Lord, to be willing to be doers of the word, respond, responding accordingly how you would have us respond to these things. We thank you that you're always working to make us more like your son. We know that's your intent and your thoughts this morning as we study your word. We are grateful for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, as we've seen, we, you know, as we've started chapter two, we've dealt with the subject of legalism. And I think it's it's right and appropriate to, to define what legalism is. And many people have different definitions, and, but mine's right. I'm just kidding. But uh, legalism for our context is adding to Christ and what he did for us on the cross to try to earn God's favor, to try to earn uh, his approval, try to earn his love, and adding to things that Scripture doesn't say we should do. So they, they try to put things that are binding upon us, they try to put you know, binding regulations and commandments and so forth that are beyond what Scripture teaches. And so we uh, got into this a little bit last time as we uh, were getting into how Paul was beginning to warn them. And he's talking, he's addressing this Gnosticism, or really this pre-Gnosticism, this belief system that would eventually turn into full-blown Gnosticism, which uh, held that basically everything that's the flesh related to a human body is sinful. And so that means that God would never come in human flesh because that would mean that God would be sinful. So they believe that Jesus came as a spirit. They uh, venerated and worshipped angels. They were, uh, had actually some Jewish uh, you know, underpinnings as well. These, these, a lot of these things he's going to be talking about, as we'll see, are Jewish in nature. These people weren't uh, Jews. They were Gentiles, mainly, that had become Christians. And so these false teachers were coming in, and they were saying, you have to do these things that have, uh, uh, you know, the context of a Jewish background a little bit, but also all this weird stuff that had nothing to do with Judaism, of, of looking only to spirit things as valuable, and nothing in the physical realm is valuable whatsoever. So that way, that, that way they could just do whatever they wanted to do and have it not pre represent who they were, or the other extreme, they, they, and this is really what he's dealing with, is that 
we're going to now get all these man-made rules to try to make sure that you put that sinful nature down going far beyond uh, what Scripture said. And so what the Apostle Paul is going to try to do, even though he's never met this church, remember, he's never met them. He didn't plant this church. You have Epaphras that came to him in prison and told him about what was going on, and he wrote this letter, but in, he's also wanting this letter to be read in Laodicea which I'll mention in chapter 4, because they need to hear it as well. These false teachers were very prolific. They, didn't, they weren't just narrowly uh, associated with this area here of Colossae. They were actually very prolific in that whole region. In fact, uh, Paul was always dealing with this kind of thing, uh, adding to grace and adding to the cross, and it took different forms. This specific form uh, is uh, dealing with Gnosticism or pre-Gnosticism. Now, what Paul, as we've seen, as we remember as we've gone through the book so far, we've seen Paul focus on, he didn't, hasn't focused on the false teaching in an overt way, in a, in a just in-your-face way. What he's done is he's focused on what these Colossians have in Christ. He wants them to see that. That's why he's talked about who Jesus is. He's talked about him being the creator, the sustainer, the head of the church. He's talked about all the riches that they have in Christ and so forth, because what he's doing, and he's going to continue it today, what he's doing is he's trying to show them that what you have is superior. We need to get this if we're going to understand this book. Paul is saying what you have in Christ is superior to what, you're what they're trying to sell you. And that's supposed to inoculate them against these teachings. And it's true even today with legalism. We're going to get into a little bit of specifics uh, if we have time. But all, all, all the, that people bring that is contrary to Scripture, they try to make binding on believers, all those man-made rules are always inferior to what we already have in Christ. They're already inferior to the freedom that we have in Christ and our uh, privilege of being supernaturally led by the Holy Spirit and have him tell us what we should and shouldn't do if things are beyond or outside of what Scripture makes clear. So that's always inferior. And so that's what Paul's going to do. And so Paul has written extensively about what they have in Christ. And so now he's going to deal with some of these as we get into the latter part of this chapter. He's going to get into the specifics that they were trying to uh, promulgate on them or trying to uh, influence them with these, these teachings. But again, he's still going to get into a lot of what we have and how it's superior. So that's very important for us to see. Now, we saw him say in verse 4 of chapter 2, he says, Now, this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with per persuasive words. We're going a little bit back into last week still. He says, I, I, I want you to understand that you, you, what's at risk here is you, you being deceived with persuasive words. False teaching is very persuasive at times. It's not always like the watchtower says, you know, you can't have blood transfusions. Well, that's not really deceptive. That's not really appealing to me. Uh, that's false teaching that isn't appealing at all. It's not persuasive. But there are other false teachings and legalism that is very persuasive. And, it, it, and usually it always appeals to the flesh. Because legalism appeals to our flesh in what we are doing, what we're accomplishing for God, what we're bringing to the table, so to speak. So our pride loves it, and we feel like we're doing something, and we're, we're, uh, we're contributing something, and we're, God, we have something valuable to bring to our relationship with God. And, and, and it's, it's a trap. And so it's very persuasive, and it's deceptive. But then in verse 8, we saw him say, he gets to the first warning. He says, beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. So not only are we in danger of being deceived with persuasive words, but we're also in danger of being cheated. And, and who of us that have children just enjoy seeing our children cheated out of something? It makes us mad. It makes us very upset. We don't want them cheated. And how much more is our Heavenly Father wanting us to not be cheated by things? And he's talking to Christians here. He's talking to us. We can be deceived and we can be cheated because, again, anything that's man-made, because God has thought of everything. You can't top how he set things up. So anything that's man-made is going to be inferior and thus it's going to, we're going to be cheated by it. So he tells them what to do. He says, so they were to walk in him. To walk. 
to continue in their faith, to grow. And he adds in verse 7, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught. So Epaphras had taught them correctly, abounding in it with thanksgiving. And again, the imagery is, a, is, is, is a, you know, that agrarian society, they're farming, rooted, and also construction built up and established in the faith. They knew exactly what Paul was talking about. All that happens with when, a, when a plant or a tree is deep-rooted and is deep-rooted into all that represents health, so spiritually you should do the same. All that happens when you build a home and you build on top of foundation and how everything has to be done systematic and in order and properly, that so too you need to be engaged in those things spiritually. And so God knows when that occurs, we won't be susceptible to false teaching, and among many, many other things. And so it's important for us to, to see that. Because as I've said many times, what God's aiming at in our lives is for us to become mature believers. And mature believers are grounded in his word among many other things. So when you're grounded in God's word, you're not going to fall prey to these winds of doctrine. That's why one of the things I love about the Calvary Chapel movement is because for 45 years or 47 or whatever it's been, years— it's been spared all these winds of doctrine that have blown through the church. We're talking, you know, barking like a dog, roaring like a lion, uh, Christians being demon-possessed. Uh, uh, let's see, what else? I mean, you could just make a whole long list of, or oh, the discipleship movement where you have to go to a person and you have to get their permission to do anything in your life. That's lording over them. It's not biblical. But that went through the body of Christ. But churches like Calvary Chapel were spared of that because sticking right with the scriptures, you're not going to fall prey to those things. That's why I'm so thankful. Because you know what? I'm not smart enough to, to, to not see those things. I'd probably be roaring with the best of them. <laughs> roaring like a lion and barking like a dog. All this crazy, wacky stuff. I'd be probably trying to levitate in the spirit if, you, if they let me, apart from being grounded in... in that's a joke, by the way. Uh, uh, if, they would, if I wouldn't have been grounded in the scripture. So we have to know how to test things. We have to properly know how to test something. One of the things that, one of the questions I've asked over my Christian walk that's irritated many people, and I'm not trying, I mean, above and beyond my normal irritation that I may bring people, is, got a verse for that. What's your verse for that? You're making that, trying to make that binding on me as a Christian. Where's your verse for that? So we have to know how to test those things. And people are very uh, willing to give us verses, but are they the right verses? Are they the right way to look at those verses and so forth? So I want to get to that at the end here today, how to have a little bit of an understanding of how to test things, whether or not they're binding upon us as believers for today. So let's get into our passage. I want you to know, first of all, verses 11 through 15, Paul is still going to be speaking about what they already have in Christ and how it's superior. But as you look at that, those things, you'll get a hint of what they were trying to introduce, these false teachers, into the lives of these believers. Because Paul isn't just randomly picking things. He's picking very specific things because of what they were trying to introduce into uh, the body. But he's doing so in a way that reinforces that what they already have is superior to what was trying to be sold to them, for lack of a better phrase. Verse 11. He says, In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now remember, these are mostly Gentile believers here in Colossae. These false teachers were wanting them to be circumcised here. So Paul is saying that you already have been circumcised, but it's a different kind of circumcision. You know, circumcision was instituted between God and Abraham. It was a sign of the covenant he was making with Abraham. And, it's, and it, was, it was to demonstrate that he was and his descendants were distinct there physically, but it also represented something deeper related to having our hearts be separated unto God and cut away from a sinful lifestyle and, and so forth. In fact, I want to read you a few verses from the Old Testament related be, to, to being circumcised in the heart, because sometimes we think, we've read that in the New Testament, we think, oh, that's just, that's just related to the New Testament, but the Old Testament doesn't deal with that, but that's not true. Deuteronomy chapter 10 verse 16 says this, therefore circumcise the foreskin of your heart, and be stiff-necked no longer. That's what I call clarity. <laughs> uh, Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 6 tells us this. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. It's important for us to see that. 
And then in Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 4, Jeremiah prophesies, he says, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord, and take away the foreskins of your hearts, you men of Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my fury come forth like fire and burn so that, you, so that no one can quench it because of the evil of your doings. So Paul tells them they've already been circumcised because they're Gentiles, they've received a, a new heart. They have, a, they have the Holy Spirit living inside of them. God has written his law upon our hearts. And he's saying that's already happened. And, he, and so he's saying, you also, notice in verse 11, he says, you also were circumcised. So that tells us that they, weren't, they were probably Gentiles that hadn't been physically circumcised. But he says, you also have been circumcised. It's a different circumcision, though. It's a, a circumcision of the heart. What you have is superior to what they're trying to sell you. They're trying to have you physically circumcised. What you already have is the fulfillment of what the physical pointed to in many ways. So don't go back and get physically. It doesn't doesn't help anything. It doesn't contribute to anything to be physically circumcised. Philippians chapter 3 verse 3, Paul wrote this. He said, for we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. We are the, the spiritual circumcision. We worship God in spirit and in truth. We're not living out our, our sinful nature anymore. And that's what that whole physical circumcision was supposed to point to, to remind Abraham and his descendants, you're different. You've been set apart. You're mine. I've, said, I've made a covenant with you. You're different. And so he's saying that's already occurred. And that's inferior or that's superior to what they're trying to convince you of. Now, notice in verse 12, Paul describes the second way their faith was superior, baptism. He says in verse 12, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, back in that time and even today, in ultra-Orthodox Jewish context, they had these pools, these these ritual bathing pools called mikvahs, M-I-K-V-E-H, mikvahs. And they would do the ceremonial bathing there. And they would do that before that they would go into the synagogue many times. And so it's very likely that here you have these, these Gnostics who had this Jewish bent to them were trying to get them to, to always engage in this ceremonial bathing. And, and so that's possible. And Paul just comes in and just says, look, that's unnecessary. That's inferior. You don't have to do that. You've already been immersed. That's what baptism means. Uh, baptizmo in Greek means immersion. The Catholic Church transliterated that into their own word because they didn't want to immerse, they wanted to sprinkle. So they just made a whole new word. But it means immersion. That's what it means. So he says, we've been buried with him in immersion in which you were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So there's at least three baptisms in the Christian faith. There's the positional baptism, a positional immersion, that when I get saved, I get placed in Christ. Every time you see in Paul's epistle, him talking about in Christ, you are in Christ, you are in Christ. That's a positional standing, a legal positional standing that I have with Christ. So God sees me perfectly righteousness, perfectly righteous rather, in Christ. That's one baptism. But there's also two other baptisms. There's baptism with water, as we know, and then there's the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Both of those are experiential baptisms. But this, I believe, is speaking about mainly his, our positional baptism that is represented when we are water baptized. Because when we are water baptized, every time I baptize somebody, I put them under the water. That means that we're being identified with Christ's death. And we're being also, it also represents that we died already. And we're making a public profession of our faith that we've already received Christ and we've had our old life buried. Then when I take the person out of the water, it represents identification with his resurrection and that I have, I'm a new person now. I've already committed my life to Christ. I'm, I'm a new creation, and that's what that means. And so the, bap, the water baptism represents the reality of my positional standing with God. And what Paul is saying is that reality is superior to any kind of ceremonial bathing that, that these people could ever want you to be engaged in. It's superior. And so that's important for, for them and us to see. Now he says in verse 13, look with me there, he says, And you... Being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. So not only is a mikvah unable to wash you spiritually, but Christ made you spiritually alive. 
In other words, the reality of how God sees our condition before Christ was that we weren't just spiritually dirty needing a bath. We were spiritually dead needing to be made alive. And out there in this world, the whole thing is you just need to be spiritually improved. You need to be, have your spirituality enhanced by whatever means that they choose or think that is necessary. But it's far worse than that. The picture is far more bleak. The picture is that you are spiritually dead. We are spiritually inoperable before we receive Christ. That's why we need to be born again. That's why we need to have a spiritual birth. Our dead spirit needs to be made alive by his Holy Spirit who comes into our lives and regenerates us, makes our spirit alive, and then that relationship with God for which we were created is realized. Then we know God. We could talk to God all we want. We don't know him. We don't have a spiritual connection with him. Yeah, he hears our prayers. He heard Cornelius' prayers in the book of Acts. But it's different than having a spiritual oneness with God, a fellowship, a communion with God. And that only happens through our spirit being made alive. So he says, you weren't just spiritually dirty. You're spiritually, you were spiritually dead and God made you alive. No mikvah can do that. No ceremonial baths can make your spirit. I don't care how much you wash. You can live in that thing. And it's not going to make your spirit alive. Now, did you catch at the end of verse 13 that he said, all our trespasses are forgiven? Note, note the word all there. Right to the end of the verse. Forgiven you all trespasses. What does all mean in the original Greek? All. That's right. It means all. No deep uh, definition needed. It means all. So that means that when, we, when Christ died on the cross... That means all of our sins that we are going to commit were paid for. So sometimes we think, especially in certain parts of the body of Christ, the sins I haven't committed yet, they're not forgiven. I have, it's up to me to confess my sins to God. Well, that's true. We do need to confess our sins to God. But in terms of our positional standing with God, he paid for all our sins. Well, at the cross, all our sins were future sins. He didn't just go all the way up to the day that we're happy to be living and pay for those. And then from now on, we have to confess it. And then the cross effectuates uh, that, those sins and deals with those sins. So it's all our future sin. And maybe some of us here need to hear to, that all of our sins have been paid for. When you were saved, he, he knew all the, the things that we would, in the ways that we'd fall short. He knew about that. He knew it from eternity past. He still decided to die for your sins. He still decided to save you. Our shortcomings and our failures and our sins don't catch him by surprise. He doesn't like him, of course. He's, he doesn't like sin. I mean, we need to confess those things so that our fellowship and our relationship with him can be where it needs to be relationally. Not positionally, it's, it's done. That's very important for us to understand. So maybe some of us really needed to see that. Maybe we need to be encouraged. Maybe we're not accepting God's forgiveness in certain things. Yeah, I'll, for, I'll for accept all these other ways that he's forgiven me, but this certain thing, just can't, I just can't let that go. Well, he's let it go. So it's pride to say that we have a different standard than God does for our lives. We need to let those things go and accept his forgiveness. And then he knows that that will bring forth incredible freedom and healing for us. Verse 14, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Now, I believe this handwriting about which he speaks here in verse 14 represents all the righteous requirements of the law of Moses, which we couldn't keep. You might remember in Acts chapter 15 when Peter is talking to the rest of the guys there, that meeting in Jerusalem, trying to explain himself <laughs> what happened related to Cornelius getting saved, saying it wasn't my fault, it was the Spirit's doing. It was, God did that. Get mad at God. The, you know, the Gentiles got saved because God did it, not because of me. And he's talking about the law and what they should put on the Gentiles for requirements. And he said, why should we put on them, the Gentiles, a yoke that we nor our fathers were able to bear? It's a heavy load because the law was never intended to save anybody. The law was intended, all 613 of those laws, was intended to be a schoolmaster for Jews directly who are under the law and Gentiles indirectly through their conscience who have the work of the law written on their hearts 
to recognize that we fall short of a standard, and that standard is perfection, and thus we, we need to recognize that we need a Savior when the Savior is presented to us. That's the function and purpose of the law. But because we couldn't keep the law, the law stood against us. Read Romans chapter 7 and how Paul talks about, you know, I tried to do this by the law and so forth, and he ends up saying, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then Romans chapter 8, the beautiful solution to that, the gospel of grace and so forth. So verse 14 is saying, all these false teachers are bringing these requirements that, rep- that may be quoting the law and so forth. He's saying all of that's been nailed to the cross. They were contrary to us, verse 14. They were against us, again, verse 14. Those things were accusing us, because of, not because the law has any f- fault to it, but because we are sinful. And so because of that, that stands in opposition to us, and we're told here by God's revelation that God nailed it to the cross. And so that is superior to anything these false teachers could be bringing to these Colossians. And he's saying, don't get ripped off and exchange the superior for the inferior. Now, as I've said before, these false teachers, they worshiped angels. They were trying to bring in this teaching among the Colossians. So Paul, again, articulates uh, our faith superiority related to that in in verse 15. He says, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. And what's interesting is that when you look at, as is often the case, when you look one way at something in the natural, usually it's the opposite of how God sees it in the spiritual. Because on that cross, who appeared to be disarmed? It appeared in the physical that Jesus was disarmed. In the physical, it appeared that he was made a public spectacle. In the physical, it appeared that he appeared uh, to be not on the triumphant side of things, that, that, that the Romans were triumphant, and the, or the Jews, the Pharisees, or whatever, or were triumphant. But verse 15 tells us the true reality. The spiritual reality is that Jesus was being triumphant. Because he said, no man takes my life. I lay it down, and if I lay it down, I can take it up again. So Jesus, from man's perspective, was murdered. From God's perspective, he gave his life. Both are true. But God initiated that before eternity even started in his heart regarding the death of Jesus on the cross for our benefit. He initiated that. It was him that offered his son in the first place so that, so that man can be saved. And so what, what's the point? What's the issue here? What, what's, what's Paul trying to get at? Don't worship angels. Jesus is superior to every angel, even fallen angels. And there's no power that these demonic, these fallen angels have over believers. And this is true for, for anything that relates to our Christian walk. The power of the enemy has been broken. You say, well, I'm not really feeling like uh, the enemy has been defeated in my life. I feel like I'm getting, you know, he still can try to deceive. He still can do all these things. There's spiritual warfare. We're told that in Ephesians chapter 6. But Jesus said, he who the Son sets free is free indeed. Luke chapter 10 verse 19 tells us this, Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. John, 1 John chapter 4 verse 4 says, Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Because of what Jesus did for us on the cross, the power of sin, the power of death, the power of hell has been broken in our lives. Those of us that know the Lord. If you're not here and you don't know the Lord, that power hasn't been broken in your life. But Jesus' death upon the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection secured that for his uh, people. So once I uh, uh, um, take that into my life, I accept it, I appropriate that in my life, then that power is broken. And so what God tells us to, after that, after we receive Christ, is to walk in that truth, walk in that reality. Resist the devil, he says, and he will flee from us. We, we, we couldn't have him resist us if, if it weren't for God's power in our life and our anointing that we have because we have the Holy Spirit. The enemy would never have to leave, but he has to leave because of who we are. Very important for us to see. Now, there's a teaching, as I mentioned, where the Christians can be demon-possessed. I don't believe that because God isn't into timeshares. You know, I mean, he isn't into uh, having roommates. He lives inside of us. He doesn't share that space. 
And so we have to know that. There's also a teaching that says there's generational curses that are put through, you know, you inherit the sinful behavior through your parents and grandparents all the way down. And that's not true either. Jesus said, he who the Son sets free is free indeed. Now, they may have raised you a certain way because of their issues that had an effect on your life. And in that sense, that has an effect on you in terms of what God's going to overcome in your life. But in terms of something being spiritually passed down, which has been taught in the body of Christ, that's false. That doesn't pass the test of Scripture. Ezekiel chapter 18 verse 20 tells us this. The soul whose sin shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. So we need to once and for all recognize verse 15 is saying Jesus made a public spectacle triumphing over the demonic realm. He's broken those chains and we are truly free. What we need to have is our mind renewed to to know how to walk in that freedom. And that's what Romans and other places um, do. So Paul continues in verse 16. He says, so let no one judge you in food or in drink or in regard regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths. Now notice he begins the verse by saying, no one judge you. No one. No father, no mother, no aunt, uncle, priest, pastor, pope. I don't care who it is. Apostle. Let no one judge you in food or drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths. Now again, there's this Jewish bent that these Gnostics had. They're trying to introduce these things to Gentiles. And Paul says, no, don't let them judge you. And, and that the, the sense of that word is like condemn. Don't let them condemn you regarding these things. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5 says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, and, which Bible, the Bible doesn't do, and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good. He's talking about eating meat. And nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified, it means set apart, by the word of God and prayer. So there's no food that we are we're spiritually more better off if we don't eat. It's very important. There's no kosher for the Christian. You can eat kosher if you want. You have the freedom. But just don't say that, it, that God tells you to do it. And don't put that on other people. Romans chapter 14 verses 1 through 4 says this. Remember one who is weak in the faith. So the people that abstain from meat in, in that context is referred to as the weaker person, actually. But not to, not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things. That's me. Uh, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. That's not me. And, and it's not criticizing people that are vegetarians. If you're a vegetarian, he's not criticizing. He's saying those who think they have a spiritual upper hand or has spiritual value, they're weak, okay? Let him, not him who eats despise him who does not eat. And let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. For God has received him. Who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. So it's talking about kosher food, kosher drinks, and so forth. It's not even getting to the issue of alcohol, any of those things. This is talking about a Jewish, uh, what's kosher and what's not. Now, he also talks about a festival or a new moon. You mean I'm supposed to, you know, uh, celebrate, I can't celebrate new moons or, you know, it's not talking about, it's talking about these feasts and these festivals that the Jews had, those things that they celebrated, those things that God instituted. God instituted those things for the Jews. But they weren't passed on to Gentiles. And once a, a, a Jewish person becomes a, a Christian and they become what they call a completed Jew, by recognizing who their Messiah is, they're not bound by those things either. But they can do it if they want to. If it's worship, it, it means worship from their hearts to God. Yeah, that's fine. There's freedom. Just don't make it binding on other people. Now, he talks about Sabbaths here. I mean, we're not going to get into Seventh-day Adventism and and people have historically, you know, you worship God on the Sabbath, or you don't worship God on the Sabbath. You're right, we don't. We don't worship God on the Sabbath. We worship God every day. Because <laughs> Jesus said that to take up your cross daily and follow him, not just on Saturday. And so the reason why we worship on, su- on Sunday is because, uh, you know, it, we're, we, 
we don't have to. I mean, we could worship on other days in terms of when we come and meet together. But it's the day that is referred to in the scriptures where it says it's the Lord's Day. It's the day that he rose from the dead. That's the, the early church gathered on Sundays for the most part. But if something happened and we couldn't worship to come together on a Sunday, we wouldn't be violating the Sabbath. We're not called to, to, to try to keep the Sabbath. Jesus is our Sabbath. And we'll get to that when we get to Hebrews. He's our rest. So it's very important for us to see that all these things that people try to put on believers, you have to test them by Scripture. And so what is keeping the Sabbath and, and, and not working from sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday and keeping that, is that superior to Jesus being our Sabbath? No, not at all. So again, Paul is saying what you have is superior to what they're trying to sell you. You, you can eat all the food that you, that you want within moderation, of course. You know, that it's not gonna, you're not going to have a spiritual advantage because you're eating kosher. What you have is superior to what they're trying to, to convince you of. Now he says the reason for these things in verse 16 is verse 17, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is Christ. So those, all those things in the Jewish uh, Old Covenant pointed to Christ. He was the fulfillment of those things. So now when I have the reality, the things that are the shadow, the things that pointed to, those, to him are inferior. I mean, if you're on a trip and you're, you're married and you're away from your wife and you have her picture and you're, 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 you love that picture, you're, you're looking at it, you're, you might even kiss that picture. I mean, you never know how things might get carried away between you and missing your wife, you know, and you're, you're there and you love that picture, but then you're finally with her again after months. You're away from her. Let's say you're on uh, active duty in the military. You finally come back and you're at, the, you're at the gate there and she's running towards you and right before you get to her, instead of giving her a hug, you take out your picture and you start hugging it and, oh, I love the shadow. That's, that's what they were doing. It's inferior. The reality is Christ. It pointed to Christ. So when Christ comes, embrace that which the shadow pointed to. Very important. So he's trying to encourage him in that. Verse 18, let no one cheat you. And again, that's the second time he's used the word cheat. Let no one cheat you of your reward. So it's not just that we're at risk of being deceived or cheated. Now we're losing our reward now. Because now we're doing things that are inaccurate. We're doing things because we have a man-centered focus. Because all legalism does is put the focus on myself, as I mentioned. So when you're doing things not for the right motivation, when you're at the Bema seat and you're standing before Christ and you're at the judgment seat of Christ... You're going to lose your reward for, for those things that had a, a self-focus and the wrong motivation. He says you're going to lose your reward taking delight in false humility and worship of angels. There he just plainly says it. I don't agree with worship of angels. Intruding into those things which he has not seen. Talking about the false teacher that has brought this stuff forward. Vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind and not holding fast to the head. So he's diagnosing a legalist, whether you're teaching it or receiving it, the more you go down that road, the less you're going to be connected spiritually or, or in a relationship manner with the head. That is Christ. You already talked about last chapter, what, who is the head? It's Christ. So you're going to be, and anytime you cut off the head, look at a chicken. <laughs> a lot of activity going around when you cut the head off a chicken, but it's not profitable activity. And so we don't want to be disconnected from the head. From whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. Now, Ephesians 4, we looked at this and we went through Ephesians. There's an anatomical description that Paul gives related to how, the, how we grow as Christians. And to sum it up, there's two ways that we grow God has set up for, for us to grow. The leaders equipping us for the work of the ministry, then every also every a uh, person in the body using their spiritual gift to supply what everyone else needs. And he talks about these same type of, uh, you know, ligaments and joints and what every joint supplies and so forth in that passage. And in, in our culture, we only focus, unfortunately, on one of those things in our church culture. We focus in on the leadership equipping the saints and coming in and learning the Word of God, and that's great. We should. But what we miss out on is that God has set things up to where we also spiritually grow through one another, what each of us contribute to our, to our uh, one another's lives. So that means that I need to be seeking out what God has me to do in other people's lives when I'm around his people. And to see what I have to contribute is valuable because it is. God doesn't give us gifts that aren't valuable and aren't for a reason. So that's what he's getting at there when he says, together by joints and ligaments grows with the increase that is from God. So no matter if it's leaders or if it's the body of Christ, both of those 
those uh, means uh, of growth, the source of their spiritual uh, uh, gifts or what they add to the situation, its source is God. So that's what we see. Therefore, if you, therefore, if, and that word is better translated since, therefore, since you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. Legalists always focus on what we shouldn't do instead of what we should do. So much of what Jesus said was in the affirmative. You ever notice that? To love the Lord thy God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. Didn't say, don't hate God. <laughs> or, don't hate your, your, your neighbor. Most of what he told us to do is in the affirmative. And, and legalists are always focusing on what we can't do. And having pride and self-fulfillment in what they don't do. When they talk about what makes them a Christian, they list a long list of what they don't do instead of what they, who they are. Because who we are in Christ is that identifies us as a Christian, not even what we do that's good. I mean, fruit and good works need to come out of our lives. But it's who we are that identifies us as a Christian, not what we do, and for sure not what we don't do. Although, obviously, there's plenty of things that God says to not do. We're going to get into that in next week, Lord willing. Now, he continues in verse 23. He says, These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom, of self-imposed religion. And that's what's appealing. That's where the deception comes in. Because on the outward, they look like they're a good idea. There are many things, spiritually speaking, we can be engaged in at any given moment that on the outside or on the, you know, on the outward perspective looks like they're, they're, they're a good idea. They're looking at the end result and they're making man-made rules to secure that end result. And leaders usually do that because they don't believe that God's word will do it in his people and don't believe the Holy Spirit speaking to his people and convicting them of sin and telling them that you're grieving me and all these things that he does. So what they do is they take matters in their own hands and say, I'm going to make all these other rules for them to fill in the blanks because obviously God messed up and he didn't include all the things that will secure and enforce these things and make sure that people don't do these certain things. And God's saying the whole time, my spirit is sufficient. I will quench, I will be quenched, I will be grieved. I will tell them to not do it anymore. I will, I will make them, I'll allow them to reap the consequences. I will send other believers in their life to, to, to encourage them. All these things that God has set up, he's left things out on purpose. It wasn't that he just ran out of ink <laughs> or he ran out of time. It's because what he laid out is superior. And that's what Paul, again, has been saying over and over again. What you have is superior. So it looks great on the outside. But he says it, can, it, it brings forth self-imposed religion, false humility. So it's, you know, I am so, you know, low and I'm doing all these things as I am so holy and all this stuff. False humility. Neglect of the body, because they think that that somehow earns something before God, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Every time you have a legalist environment, who, who here has been involved in a legalistic environment, in your estimation? Quite a bit of us. I mean, a lot of us. Me too. And all that does is create an atmosphere of actors. And all it does is it creates uh, an environment where people do things in secret now. It doesn't, it, it, it actually entices the flesh. It doesn't put down the flesh. Only God and his spirit through his word will actually cause uh, fruit to come out of my life, not man-made rules that I'm imposing on myself or, or others. Very important for us to see. Now in closing, I want to just go over a few principles that will help us know how to test things to see if they're binding upon us and if we should be engaged in those things. First of all, we need to recognize that there's there's four ideas related to things being promoted in our lives. There are four ways of looking at things. There's things that are biblical, which the Bible says we should do and, and that are binding. There's things that are unbiblical, which the Bible says we shouldn't do, and that's binding. There's also things that are non-biblical, where the Bible is silent on. And there's also things that are extra-biblical. And extra-biblical, I think, we'll just cast that aside right away because those of us here obviously agree that our Bi the Bible is the final stand. There's no other outside influences or books or standards. Now, cults get that wrong, but that's why, in part, they're, they're a cult, because they're looking at extra-biblical authority. So we won't deal with that. But we have to first look at things that are biblical. Does the Bible say that we should engage in those things? Are they binding upon us? And, and so examples of those things would be baptism, water baptism, communion, 
laid clearly out in Scripture. Evangelism. There's a great commission that every single one of us is supposed to obey. And so that's cleared out. That, I mean, clearly stated. Uh, being among God's people. Fellowshipping. Being, you know, that is commanded in Scripture. We're told that in Hebrews. Christian growth. God's called us, each one of us, to, 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 to yield to God, to submit our lives to God, and allow him to produce growth through our lives. Loving one another. How many times do we see loving one another in the Scriptures? Serving, giving financially with our, with our sustenance, worshiping in that way. That's laid out in Scripture. Walking in our marital roles. Children obeying parents. I mean, I could make a whole long list. So could you of things that are biblical. God tells us that we are to do them, and that if we don't do them, we're in disobedience to him. But then there's the things that are unbiblical. It's the opposite. Sin, pride, being unteachable, not forgiving people when they sin against us, eating with someone who's named a Christian who's engaged in rebellious sexual uh, activity. We're not even supposed to eat with those people. It says that in Corinthians. That's forbidden. Uh, not confessing sin to God. We're supposed to submit to do that. So not doing that is sin. Gossiping, foul language. I mean, you could go down the list. Things that are absolutely prohibited in Scripture. That's binding on all of us. But the, the area that we get kind of foggy on is things that are non-biblical that people try to make biblical. So there's things that I feel so bad. I've told some of you uh, ladies before. I feel so bad for you that are on all these email lists of, you know, homeschooling lists or these, these, these lists where you're getting input from all these different people all the time about things that they're into and so forth. And, and there's a whole long list of things that I would, I would consider liberties in Christ. Like, you know, some people will say it's God's will that every child is homeschooled. Well, I don't believe that. There's nothing in scripture that says that. Or that we have to not celebrate certain holidays, or that we have to celebrate certain holidays. You don't have to celebrate Christmas. You don't have to celebrate a birthday. You don't have to celebrate Resurrection Sunday. There's nothing in Scripture that says that you have to do that in, the, in a way, a formal way. You have to appreciate, obviously, you know, the resurrection of Christ, and, you know, we see the first Christmas, you know. But there's these, I mean, but people will say that's wrong. We, we shouldn't celebrate those because they have pagan origins, they may have pagan origins, but God came in, or at least the church did, and came in and replaced those things with Christian themes and so forth. But if you don't want to do that, and there's nothing that says in Scripture you have to celebrate those things. Again, I mentioned worshiping on Sundays. We don't even have to worship on Sundays. There's nothing that commands Christians to worship on Sundays. We do that. We enjoy it, and, and we prefer that, most of us. But again, if we couldn't for some reason, and t let's say Tuesdays became the day where everyone had off, and Sundays was a massive work day in our culture, we might move it to Tuesdays. I mean, Paul said in Romans chapter, um, let's move back here, 14 verse 5, he says, one person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. So every day is a day that we, we worship God. Wives working outside the home. Scripture doesn't teach that, that uh, wives can't work outside the home. Now, it does say they need to be responsible for their home. They need to manage the home. But who says they can't do that and still work outside the home? Now, it may get to the point where their working outside the home gets in the way of that. Well, that's a whole other issue. But they may, be to work, they may be able to work part time. They may be able to. I mean, obviously, uh, Scripture doesn't teach that women can't do that. Look at Proverbs 31. You're telling me that that, that woman there didn't, didn't work and make some money? I mean, uh, come on. There's, there's all kinds of things. Dancing, makeup, you can't wear, women can't wear uh, pants, uh, or they have to wear their hair a certain way, or wear the caps on their head, the German Baptist women. Uh, I mean, there's all kinds of things that people will say, those are binding on, on, on us, and, and they're not. And I want to give you a few little ways that you can check that. First of all, you need to look at which covenant are you in. <laughs> are you looking at the old covenant or are you looking at the new covenant? Because we're not bound by the old covenant anymore. And that is a revelation. I've actually offended people accidentally, above and beyond my normal offending, uh, where I have said we are not, the, the Ten Commandments were written to Jews. We are not bound to obey the Ten Commandments in and of themselves. Okay, now hold on before you walk out of here. Okay. Jesus said that the, to love the Lord thy God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor, neighbor as yourself, all the, these two commandments, all the prophets hang on those. So if we love God with everything and love our neighbor with everything, we're going to be doing the Ten Commandments. 
except the Sabbath, which Jesus is our Sabbath, we're told in Hebrews. So we're supposed to obey the law of Christ because we're in the new covenant. So there's all kinds of ceremonial law, much of which Paul's been dealing with, that is not binding upon Christians. In Acts 15, in the Council of Jerusalem, they said these things abstain from, and, and some of those things were just because they needed to get along with the Jewish brothers in that, in that geographical area. That really had nothing to do with uh, the Christians from that point on. So we have to be careful. What covenant are we looking at? We're in a better covenant. Hebrews tells us that the new covenant's a better covenant. So we have to know what covenant are we looking at? We can't interpret uh, the New Testament in light of the old. We need to interpret the Old Testament in light of the new. That's very important for us to see that. The other thing is, is we have to look at the culture. When we're talking about those head coverings, we went through this when we went through Corinthians, that most of the women covered their head in that culture. The only ones that didn't cover their head were prostitutes in that culture. That means something entirely different in Corinth than it does today. We have to look at the culture. When he says a wife should be silent in the church and should wait and ask, uh, you know, their husbands at home if they have any questions. In that culture, they were separated. They were segregated. The men sat on this side. The women sat on the other side. So, of course, you have to look at culture. So you can't just say because it's a good idea and because there's some verse here that alludes to something like that, what covenant it is in, what culture is it, is it, is it speaking from, and then here's the really good test. Did Jesus teach on it? Did he practice it and teach on it? Was it practiced in the book of Acts? And was it taught on in the epistles? If we look at that test, most of the things that people say are binding upon us that are non-biblical, we'll see that they're, not, that they're truly non-biblical. They're not binding upon Christians. And then we'll be free from all these things because uh, God wants us free from those things. And he wants us to test. Acts 17, 11. They tested what the Apostle Paul said, and, and they were commended for it. He didn't say, I'm an apostle, don't test me. They held him. Don't give any person that, that high of a, a trust where you just believe what they say about the Bible. You test what they say. You test what everything that comes out of their mouth by the Scriptures. We're also told in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, Behold, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out, into the world. So did Jesus teach it? Was it practiced in the book of Acts? Was it taught on in the epistles? The more all three of those things are relevant related to what someone's trying to put on us, the the safer ground we are on, and that will protect us. And we'll go into other things when we have classes on Bible interpretation and so forth in the future. If you have questions, come to to me or one of the other leaders, or, or just don't rush into things. When you're looking about changing your view on something, don't rush into that. Take it slowly. Investigate. Look at the opposite view. See why other people are disagreeing with what you're leaning towards. You might be enlightened. And so what's interesting is that anything that's not biblical, that people are trying to make to be biblical in our lives, is usually inferior to what we already have. Again, it's, inf- it's inferior. Now, the Holy Spirit may specifically lead us to do one of these things that are non-biblical, that aren't mentioned in Scripture for certain reasons, but that's different, like I've mentioned. But we, that's, we can't make that binding on everybody else. Once I say something that the Bible is silent on and the Holy Spirit's told me to do that doesn't contra- contradict Scripture, that's fine. But once I start saying it's binding on the rest of the body of Christ, now I'm engaged in legalism and I need to be careful. So that's God's warning for us and his encouragement. Let's pray together. Thank you for your instruction, God. Thank you, Lord, that you've given us the truth. And thank you that you didn't miss out on anything. You didn't forget anything. You didn't leave anything out for us. Thank you, it's for freedom that you've set us free. And you've called us to not be engaged again in in any kind of bondage, any kind of bondage. And we're thankful that you have freed us. Thank you, Jesus, that you made a public spectacle of the demonic realm on the cross, that you've, you've, you've given us true freedom because we're in you. I pray, Lord, that none of us in this room and none of us that are in the children's ministry, none of us that are part of our church family, would ever fall prey to false teaching or legalism. I pray, Lord, that we would be led by your Holy Spirit directly and, and also through your word in, in following you and obeying all the things that you've called us to obey, and it's a privilege to do so. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.